Most people believe the Holy Spirit exists. But why don't we ever talk about it? We hear about the Holy Spirit, and we sing about the Holy Spirit. But do we understand who He is? The Holy Spirit is not meant to be a mystery. He is a person, not an it. The Holy Spirit isn't just a power source to tap into when we need it. It's about communion with the person. There are many aspects of the Holy Spirit. There's a baptism with the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit. And the truth of who He is is painted throughout the Bible. The Holy Spirit is meant to be a part of our everyday lives. And we are called to live in the supernatural. Man, it's so rich being in the presence of God, huh? I could just keep going all day. God is good. Well, uh, my name is Drew Stedman, for those who don't know me, and I have had the privilege of serving on the team here at Antioch now almost 19 years. That makes me feel a lot older than I actually am, I think. But I love getting to do what I do, and uh, for those of you who maybe are new to Antioch, one of our core callings is we are committed to God's purposes in the nations of the earth, and for us, that means that we plant churches. We start churches here in our nation and all around the world. Thank you, Jimmy. Let's keep going. Uh, we have 46 churches in the United States coming out of this family, and we have 100 teams that are long-term serving on the mission field internationally that are an extension of us this morning ministering to people who don't know Jesus. And I have the great joy of being part of the team that supports that work. And I just, before we dive into the message today, I wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you. Because there's so many in this room. So many of you have been the ones who have gone. You're the ones that care for missionaries in a variety of different ways. You support them financially. You pray for them. And we could not do this without your partnership. And so what a joy to get to do this together. And God is moving. And it's a privilege to partner with him in this hour. Amen? Amen. Well, we have been a part of a series now going back all the way to August called Yet For Us. And we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been a wonderful time. And every single week, we've been reading a theme verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. And so I'd love to invite you to stand now, and we're going to read this together as our declaration. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This is what I believe and what I stand on by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. This version we read is still a different one than in my Bible, and it trips me up every single time. So <laughs> you'd think I'd have it by now. I know, we got to get to the end of the series before I can do it by heart. Well, hey, I've loved going through um, 1 Corinthians, and if you've been journeying with us uh, this starting off really since the new year, we've been king in on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and it has been amazing. Last week, Jimmy finished up this part of our series by talking about the gift of tongues, it was a wonderful time. Make sure you check it out if you haven't had a chance to yet. And, and God's just doing something rich in our midst. Um, next week kicks off Holy Week. So we have Palm Sunday next Sunday and then Easter after that. That's right. Palm Sunday deserves a round of applause. If there's anything that deserves a round of applause, it's the kingship of Jesus. Amen. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 um, for those two Sundays as we dive into the reality of the resurrection and this morning, we're going to go backwards in Corinthians to chapter 11, and we're specifically going to look at the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. 
So if you've got a Bible or you want to scroll in your Bible on your phone, um, go ahead and pull it out. Have it handy. We're going to camp out here the entire morning, and I'd love for you to have that reference available um, as we unpack what all it means. Now, part of our, verse this, our verses this morning are 23 through 26, and these are probably some of the most famous and repeated verses in all of Scripture, because this is what is shared every time the church gathers to take communion Often, these are the words that are shared. And this has been going on for two millennia, and it goes on all around the world. So these verses are beautiful. And they're the words of Jesus that are going to describe what we're about to do. And we're going to read those this morning, but we're going to read them at the end. And I, I think actually the right way to read them is by taking communion together as we read them. They're not just meant to be studied, but to be um, used as a catalyst for worship. But here's the thing about this passage. A lot of people are familiar with those four verses, but the rest of this chapter is really intense. It's confusing, it's a bit weird, and I find a lot of Christians skip over it for all of those reasons. Uh, But that's typically a key for me when I find something that doesn't make sense or seems like it doesn't fit. Normally that's a great place to dive deep and study because that's generally where God has a really important message for us. And I think we'll find that to be the case this morning as well. And before we read our passage, um, if you've been around part of this series, you might've heard me refer to a sandwich. Anybody remember this? A few of you, okay, I'll say it again. When Paul writes, he has this technique that he likes to do where he will introduce a topic. He'll talk about it for a little bit. Then he'll shift to some other topic, talk about that for a little bit, and then he'll go back to the first topic. So I call it a sandwich because picture like a slice of bread, a slice of bread, meat in the middle. Typically, the thing in the middle is the heart of the passage. And the bread, the outside, represents the issue that that church was facing. For the Corinthian church, that's typically a place they're in trouble. Like that's mama talking to them. Like that's that's normally what, where it starts, but then he's going to take that and say, now let me get you to the heart of what I want to say. Now let's go back through your problem and figure out how this might change us. So I'm going to go ahead and just be a spoiler and steal, steal the thunder of this passage and say, the heart of our passage this morning is that whole bit about the words of Jesus in 23 through 26. But to understand the significance of it, we've got to look at the two slices of bread, which are the surrounding verses that have a lot of awkward stuff in it. So let's dive into it. Let's read it and uh, let's see what God might say to us. I'm going to start off in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 says this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be divisions among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. All right, like I I told you, right? Like you see why we skip over these passages. It's, It's a bit confusing and it's a bit challenging. So right out the gate, Paul comes out guns blazing. Like, When you guys meet, it's actually causing more problems than it's helping. And then he gets in to this very confusing, I don't know if anybody else is confused by this, but this very confusing two verses, 18 and 19, on the one hand, he confronts them for having divisions. Now that makes sense to me. We've talked about divisions as part of this series, so I can get why Paul would confront divisions. But then in the very next verse, verse 19, it's almost like he changes his mind. It's like, actually, you have to have some differences to see who has God's approval. You're like, God, are our divisions bad? Are they good? Are they necessary? Are they a sign of our sin? Like, what are you trying to say here, Paul? He never really clears it up, and then he jumps into the next verse. 
So I'm going to leave you hanging on that, and we're going to get back to the confusing part in a second. Because I want, to, I want to unpack what's actually going wrong here in this church. Like, did you catch the problem? There are people in this church that are getting drunk in communion, while other people are going hungry. Now, I've heard a lot of bad church stories in my life, but this one's pretty far up there. Like, getting drunk in communion? How is that even possible? I mean, at a church like Antioch, we don't even have alcoholic communion. So how is that possible? We would have to leave our little communion cups in the closet for a very long time before that's a realistic problem. (laughs) Now, some of you have spent some time in church closets to know that that actually could be a realistic problem in some churches because there's some communion on that shelf that's been there for a while, you know? Our team's great. You don't have to worry about that here. But even in a church that serves alcoholic communion, how many times do you have to go through the communion line before this is a realistic issue? Like, wouldn't you catch them, like, on the third time? Be like, hey, buddy, let's come off to this diet and have some ministry. Like, what? What kind of church is this? I've got to confess, I'm, I'm weirdly comforted by this passage. Because here's the thing about church. Church has problems because people are in church. So you can look in the mirror and figure out what's going on. You know, it's like people bring their problems to church. Church will always have problems until Christ returns because church has people like you and me in it. And so sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're a part of church long enough, whatever church you're a part of, you will get to a point where you get discouraged about the problems in the church. It's going to happen, promise you. And what comforts me is I look back and I read about the church in the New Testament and I think, we got problems, but they got problems. I've heard a lot of bad stories, but I haven't heard this one yet. You know, so this, this church is dealing with real problems just like every other church is dealing with real problems. So I'm comforted by it to know that even in the age of the apostles, they still, still dealt with the same human nature that we have to deal with today, and they overcame it. So I'm comforted by it in a weird kind of way. In fact, I have this grid as like, as long as, as, long as we're healthier than the Corinthian church, I'm going to pat myself on the back. So good job, Antioch. We're doing it, you know? I don't know if it's proper to keep score like that, but it helps me. All right, so we got a church with some problems. Now, you read this story and you think, okay, that's not going to happen here. Bad stuff will probably happen, but that one's not going to happen. Is it relevant to us? And I think it actually really is. Now, I'm not worried about any of you drinking too much of our communion drape juice. But there's an underlying issue here that Paul's confronting. And to get it, we got to actually dive a bit more into the culture of the day of what was going on in this church. So Corinth was in Greece. And this was uh, an environment of people that were mostly non-Jewish believers that had come to faith and they had started to gather and to meet. God is doing a neat work there despite the challenges in the church. And in Greek culture at that time, it was actually really normal for someone to have a banquet with some kind of religious ceremony attached to it. And this was a you know, pretty typical part of the culture. And in this society, like every other society, you have people at the top of society, the rich and the powerful. And in Greek culture, they would be known as benefactors or patrons. And, and, you know, they'd have this kind of like orbit of people around them. And you have, on the one hand, you have people that were socially mobile, that were maybe not quite as well off as they were, but they're climbing the ladder so they can be important as well. You've got your typical middle class, and then you have the poor. You have the servants, the slaves, the day laborers that were kind of part of this broad household, all right? So you'd kind of just picture this rich person at the top and this whole community of people around them, and they would have these feasts. And if like your rich person has a feast, it was pretty important for you to show up and be part of it. So what would happen is they would send out a banquet invitation to their other friends that were important or close to being as important as they are. And they've actually found this evidence. Most of these banquets would start around three in the afternoon. 
So picture these people showing up to this really fancy house. They had this private dining room that would seat nine people. You'd go in and they would start eating at three in the afternoon, this rich feast of food and drink, and they'd just be having a great time back there. Well, then what you'd have is you'd have other people show up. And they'd show up, they'd trickle in later. And depending on, you know, if you were relatively well off, maybe you come a bit later. If you were poor, you might not be able to come till the sun sets. If you're one of the household slaves, maybe you don't even get anything at all. It just kind of depends on how many leftovers they are. But you have this big event and there's a religious component to it. And that was a pretty typical part of life. And every time they gathered to have one of these events, they were reinforcing the values of their Greek culture. That was what was going on. So let's enter the church. Some of these people get saved. They start meeting and celebrating the Lord's Supper and having a church service. But you see, the problem with the Corinthian church is not that they were doing something crazy. The problem with the Corinthian church is they were doing what they had always done. And what they were doing was having a Greek banquet and calling it church. They were engaging, participating in the values of their surrounding culture that fixed value on somebody based on where they fit in that social hierarchy. They were participating in that structure and calling it church. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not what we do. That's not what it means. That is not what the body and the blood of Jesus, this sacrifice of Jesus that set you free is not so you can go along being a better Greek person. The values of the kingdom are not meant to support the values of our culture. They're meant to transform us into the image of Christ. And if we don't get that, that's why he's saying your meetings are doing more harm than good because you're gathering together and the power of God is here to transform you, but you're disregarding it to do your own thing. Like we got to stop this. We have to confront this because I want to bring about a change. Starting to make a little more sense, right? What's going on? Maybe we see the relevance. It's so easy to just keep doing the things our world teaches us to do and lose sight of the presence of God in our midst that wants to transform us from the inside out. The Corinthians had a problem. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we do as well. All right, so let's go back. Maybe we've got a better handle of what's going on here. Let's go back to the confusing verse. You remember that one about divisions? And so Paul, on the one hand, is he's confronting them for having divisions, which in this case, he's referring to social divisions in the church. But then he goes on to say, actually, there have to be some differences among you. And in the NIV, which I read earlier, it says those who have God's approval. Now, this is one of those passages where English translations don't do it quite justice. Some of you in your Bible, it might read something along the lines of those who are approved or those who are genuine. So Paul wrote this letter in Greek and the original word he used for this word about approval is one of my favorite Greek words to say. You ready for it? Doikimoi <laughs> or dokimoi. Isn't that awesome? I feel like we should use it. Let's come up with a reason for it. Dokimoi. And it refers to proving character or something that passed the test. And so I was trying to figure out, like, what, what's it maybe a modern illustration of this? And, and I thought of the produce section of the grocery store. Now, some of you in here, because I've seen you, when you approach those avocados or those apples, you are carefully selecting each one. And if there is the slightest blemish, you're going to put it back. And you're going to take your time to get the exact perfect one. Now, my wife wishes I was more like you when I go to the grocery store. But my, I'm like a man on a mission and my approach is to get in there and out of there as fast as I can. So I'm just grabbing fruit, throwing it into bags and getting home and hoping it works, right? I'm not dokimoi. But it's that process of determining, does this pass the test? 
is it right? They would actually use this word. Builders would use it if they were working on a temple. This is how they would select the materials. Like, is this construction material worthy of being in the house of one of their gods? Dokimoi. Or they'd use it for a sacrifice. Is this animal that we're going to sacrifice to our God, is it worthy? Does it fit? They'd also use it for politicians. Is their character worthy? Just saying, maybe a good idea. All right, so you're catching what this means. It's talking about something that is past the test. And so what's Paul saying? How does this all fit together? He's saying, you guys have divisions in the same way that your Greek culture has taught you how to live. But there's a different kind of difference that God is looking for, those who look like Christ and those who do not. Are we the people who pass the test? Are we the people who recognize the body of Christ? Or are we the people who carry on living just like the world has always taught us? What kind of divisions are in the church? And that's where he goes on to confront them. He's saying, you guys are found wanting. You're despising the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. You've missed entirely the point of the grace of God and the way that he's wanting to bring about a transformation. Okay, that's our first slice of bread. I gotta warn you, it gets more intense, not less, before we get to the, get to the heart of communion in our passage. So we're gonna pick back up and I'm gonna skip ahead. Our second slice of bread, chapter 11, verse 27. You can go ahead and read with me. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why so many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. So if you weren't like scared a little bit, now you are. I mean, you read this, you hear what Paul's saying? That if we gather together, and we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. We're actually eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. And then he goes on to say that some people have done this and they've gotten sick and even died. Yikes. Like this is one of those passages you just want to skip over in your Bible, right? Like how do you reconcile this with the grace of God? It's tricky. I was trying to think of maybe what's an illustration for what I think Paul's trying to say here. And what came to my mind was, I don't know if any of you have ever gone to the doctor for some condition and been prescribed a really powerful medicine. And you know, a lot of really powerful medicines, they are used for our healing, but if they're taken incorrectly, can be used for your harm. They're powerful. They have a powerful ability to extend life. But in the same way, if you approach them flippantly, they could really hurt you. This is why we put our medicine up on the top cabinet, right? This is why you carefully select it and make sure you're taking the right dosage each day. This is why you might even need help to do that because we recognize that what we're handling is something that's really powerful. And so we approach it reverently. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here when he's talking about communion. He's saying that what we've been given is powerful. There's nothing more powerful than this. The presence of God coming into our world to heal us, transform us, and to set us free. It's powerful, so don't treat it lightly. Don't approach the table flippantly, arrogantly. But we come to the table with the fear of the Lord, with sobriety, 
And I also believe with thanksgiving and with joy. I think that's what he's getting at here. How do we approach the table of the Lord? A couple things I want to highlight or point out. Paul gives us the clue of what he's calling us to, and that's we're supposed to examine ourselves. All right, so we don't eat the bread in an unworthy manner or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. Instead, we need to examine ourselves. That word examine in your English Bible is dokimoi. It comes back again, or variation of it. And so it's this idea that we wanna be the people who we're not waiting until judgment day, but today we're saying, Holy Spirit, come, search me, transform me, heal me. God, my life is open to you, examine me. Do I look more American or more like Jesus? Do I look more Greek or more like Jesus? Like, God, my my life is yours. I don't want to hold back from you. But we could take this passage and I think we could apply it the wrong way because it'd be very easy to take this and go lock yourself in a room with a checklist of what it means to live rightly and go try to figure it out where you're looking down at yourself. But if you read, what does Paul say? If you jump ahead into verse 29, Or 28 says, we examine ourselves. 29 says, how do we do it? By discerning the body of Christ. We examine ourselves, not by gazing inward at ourselves, but we examine ourselves by looking upward at the person of Jesus. We examine ourselves in light of his presence and his person in this place. We don't examine ourselves in our own strength. Instead, we look to Jesus and in the eyes of Jesus, that's actually how we accurately see ourselves. I cannot examine myself in my own strength, but I can come to the person of Jesus. I can discern his presence. I can recognize that Jesus is not an abstract idea, but he is a person who is really here in this moment. His presence is in this room. And when I lay hold of that reality, when I look to him, when I open up my heart before him, it's there in that place that I see myself as I really am. We examine ourselves by discerning the body of Christ. And it's there, you know what we see? Yes, I'm probably gonna see my sin, but even more so, I'm gonna see his grace. When I examine myself in light of him, I'm gonna see a savior who's hung up on a cross for our sake. I'm gonna see a savior who conquered sin, death, and hell when he rose from the grave. I'm gonna see a savior who promised that one day he's coming back for his people and reigns forever in all of eternity. When I discern the body of Christ, I'm gazing at reality and I'm seeing things as they really are and not whatever lies this world has put upon me. We examine ourselves as we discern Christ in our midst. And there's something about discerning his body I believe it's his person and his presence here in the church, but I also believe we discern his body when we look down the aisles and we see the people here with us because God calls us his body. It's still one of the most amazing things in all of scripture that Jesus would refer to us and all of our sin and brokenness as his body. I can't think of a more intimate illustration than that where his bride, his household, his chosen people and his body. That's how he sees us. And as I discern the body of Christ and I look across this room, I recognize that there's not a single one of us that deserves to be at this table. Do you know that? It does not matter how well you think your life is put together or how badly you think you've messed things up. None of us have earned a seat at this table. There's nothing you could do that deserves drinking this cup and eating this bread. We do not deserve the grace that has been given to us, but it's been given all the same. And when I come before the table of the Lord, I don't bring anything. And neither do you. 
And that levels the playing field for all of us. Because we're all here just because of his grace. And as we together come before Jesus, there's a freedom that takes place. And church, do you know how much we need this? Because when you walk out these doors today, whatever the message of the world, whatever lies and false identities that our world teaches us are going to be coming right back. We need this taste of reality to orient us to what is true. Because this is more real than what you experience out there. This is more real than what you're going to see when you scroll on your phone today. This is more real. Amen. Amen. It's our reality. And as we approach the table of the Lord, we are tasting reality as things really are. And that sets us free. Are you starting to see why Paul was so frustrated with the way the Corinthians were treating this meal? He's like, how could we let this come under the values of our culture to such an extent that we miss the opportunity to get in touch with the presence and person of Jesus that's changing all things? Let's not do that. Let's walk into the freedom that he's given us. Now, I think it'd be easy, and I want to make sure to make this point, when we talk about not eating or drinking judgment on ourselves or eating or drinking in an unworthy manner, I think it would be easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we need to go get our lives in order before we're able to come take communion. And I don't think that's what Paul means. I don't think that's grace. I don't believe that the message is you need to go off on your own and whatever struggles you have, go fix yourself. And then as your reward, you can come to church and experience the presence of Jesus. In fact, I don't think you're able to be fixed apart from the presence of Jesus. This meal is not your reward. This meal is your healing. You need the grace of God to become the person that God has called you to be. Please don't misinterpret this passage into thinking that you're cut off from grace until you get your life together. You can't. It doesn't work. And this room is filled with people that can testify that in our own strength, we are not able to walk in the fullness of God has called us to be. But it's only by the grace of God. God's grace is freely given. I don't deserve it. Neither do you. And no matter what you have done, there's nothing you can do to deserve it. And that means it's free to anybody in this house. But God's grace is also meant to empower you. And there's something, remember my medicine illustration earlier, there's something about the presence of Jesus that brings healing to us and sets us free to look like Jesus. So the issue is not that we need to go get our life put together. The issue is that we need to recognize what we are doing when we come before his table. I believe in the eyes of God, somebody in this room, if your life is a complete mess and you look inward and you're like, I got nothing to offer, but you come with humility and recognizing that you are standing before a living God who loves you. I believe that is exactly the type of person that God wants to minister to this morning through his table. The problem is when, when we approach his table flippantly or arrogantly, when we don't consider, we don't discern, we don't recognize Jesus's presence in our midst. I believe that's what Paul is confronting. So here's the good news. You ready for it? It's been a lot of intense passages. Here's the good news. Is that this morning, if you're a sinner, his table's open to you. This morning, if you're weak, his table's open to you. This morning, if you feel like your life has fallen apart, his table's open for you. This morning, if you're sick, literally sick in your body, his table's open to you. And I believe there's healing in this house. This morning, if you feel distant from God, and you show up at worship and you don't feel anything, guess what? His table's open for you as well. 
His table is freely given to us, but we need to discern his presence in, this midst, in our midst. There's something so powerful about it that the broken body of Jesus would be exchanged for our broken soul. Something so powerful that the shed blood of Jesus would redeem us from our sin. His broken body has restored your brokenness and his shed blood now courses through your veins. He's made you new. Like that's what you celebrate when you take communion. Uh, to me, it's like this mystery. I still can't get my head quite wrapped around. I still can't believe that God is that good. So when we approach the communion table, yes, there's sobriety. Yes, there's reverence. Yes, there's a healthy fear of the Lord. But there should also be deep thanksgiving and joy because what God has done for us. Amen? I've heard people say that grace is a free gift. And though it's true, I don't like how it's said. I'd rather say grace is a costly gift. A great price was paid so that it can be given freely to you. And when somebody gives you a great gift, you treat it with respect because you recognize what they paid for it. And that's what we're doing this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. A few last thoughts before we don't just talk about this, but we put it into practice. And um, here in just a few minutes, we're going to take a time of letting God come and examine us. We're going to have some music playing real quietly, and we're just going to sit here and let the Lord speak to us. And then we'll actually all together at the same time take communion. But before we get to that part, I want to point out a couple things. First of all, I'm preaching with this at the center today because I believe it's meant to be a prophetic symbol of what God's wanting to speak to us. That if there's anything I've learned the last couple years, it's that the only reason we're able to be here today is the presence and the person of Jesus. And when he is central, everything else makes sense. But if we make anything else central, we're going to lose our way. That's the message of Jesus to us, is that his presence the person of Jesus in this house. He has to be lifted up. This has to be about him and his glory and not about us. And any place in us, every time we take communion, I pray that's a reminder. Every time we gather in worship, I pray that's a reminder of Jesus. You be exalted. You be lifted up. You be the center. And it's only then that we make sense. Here's what I love about Jesus is when I lay myself on the altar, when I surrender and, and glorify him, exalt him and put him at the center, when I do that, I discover that everything is there for me as well. But when I make it about me, I miss Jesus and I miss the fullness of what he's wanting to do. When you make it about Jesus, he prepares a meal for you. Like he's that good. But we gotta put him at the center. A few last things, Paul as he introduces these, this famous passage in verse, starting in verse 23 that we're going to read in a moment, he starts it off by saying that what I have received, I pass on to you. And I love that. I was thinking about this. I think of Paul, who was the great persecutor of the church. I mean, his job was killing Christians before he came to Christ. Talk about a guy that was messed up. But the church welcomed him into fellowship. I'm sure they were afraid. They welcomed him into fellowship. And I just picture these words were what he received in those days. As he's being extended forgiveness by the very people that he sought to kill, he's hearing the words of Jesus and he too is receiving a place at the table. And then I picture that he's taking what he's freely received and giving it to others. And it's been passed down through the generations. And in my mind's eye, I was just picturing generation after generation of believers who faithfully declared the name of Jesus and found his grace to be sufficient. And when we say these words, when we 
eat this bread and drink this cup, we are doing that and standing on the shoulders of thousands of years of people declaring the faithfulness and goodness of God. Isn't that cool? So much has changed in the world, but this has not changed and it will not change. And at the end of this passage, it says, we proclaim this. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And communion is a prophetic act because every time we take it, we declare to this world that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient and that we serve a king who is coming back again. And we look back and we see that his sacrifice was enough to disarm the sin, the powers, and the principalities of this world. And his sacrifice is enough. And now he is exalted as king. And one day he's coming back for his people. And every time we take communion, we are reminded of what is true. And it's a declaration that we speak over ourselves and we speak to the world around us. Amen? Let's do this. I'm going to invite Owen to come back up on stage. We're going to dim the lights. And I just thought it was most appropriate for these last four verses. I just don't think it's something that I teach. I think it's something that together we do. But before we do, I want to, do, I want to lead us in a time of letting the Holy Spirit examine our hearts. And remember, this is about just discerning his presence in our midst. And here's what I'd encourage you with. If you're coming in this morning, whatever it is that's in the front of your mind, maybe even as we were reading some of these passages and it's all this intensity, whatever was bringing up insecurity or fear, maybe it's sin that you know you're dealing with, maybe it's some weakness or distance you feel to God. In a moment like this, don't try to fix yourself, but instead recognize that you are here in the presence of God right now. And he's big enough for whatever you're dealing with. And I found, at least in my case, a simple prayer. Even if I don't feel anything emotionally, just a simple prayer of giving that back to God is what it takes. And then I receive his grace. And so if it's sin, confess it to God. And you you know, there could be something you need to do later, but in this moment, confess it to God. If it's distance, just tell him you feel distant. He's big enough to handle that but you're pressing into him as a person, into his presence, and you're just taking whatever it is that feels like a block and you're, you're laying it down on him. And I'm just gonna invite the Holy Spirit to come speak to us, whatever he's wanting to say. And I found a little tip that sometimes he does bring conviction. A lot of times he brings encouragement, but sometimes there's conviction. And I almost always know it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit if there's hope attached to it. It can feel like a gut punch, but there's always hope when it's the Holy Spirit. If it's just condemnation, that's probably not the Lord. Just ask for his grace. So Spirit of God, we're here as your people in your presence. We're not here because we're worthy. We're not here because we deserve it. God, if we're honest, we've got so much inside of us that causes us to feel like we should pull away from you, but this morning we're here because we receive your grace. And I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Speak to us. Bring comfort, encouragement, conviction, whatever you need to do. But help orient our hearts to recognize your nearness in this place.
We're going to take the bread and the cup together. This is for anyone here, if you know Jesus, you're invited to join us. And if anyone here doesn't know Jesus, I'd love to invite you to take this time just as a time of reflection. And at the end, Jimmy's going to get back up and talk to you about what it might mean to make that decision to start walking with him. And I would just absolutely love to get to celebrate communion with you as you make that decision. Now, just if you are new to these, you can peel off this top layer. There's a wafer, and then there's a second layer to give you access to the cup. You can go ahead and peel off that top layer just so you have it handy. Verse 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, we take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ, we take the cup. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord, as your people gathered here this morning, we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you would come. You'd count us worthy to share this meal with you. Thank you, Jesus, for your shed blood, your broken body that sets us free. Thank you, Jesus, even as we take this, that the presence of God is in this room bringing healing and freedom and hope and restoration. Thank you for grace that forgives us. Thank you for grace that transforms us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. It's our heart cry. We just want to turn our heart to you now in worship. Just as Owen leads us in the song, you're welcome. However you want to respond, let's just give gratitude in our heart for what the Lord has done for us.